A cell phone? A computer chip? A CD-ROM with the Human Genome Project? A piece of transoceanic cable? It was 1999, the eve of a new millennium, and these were just a few of the technological artifacts that made it into the National Millennium Time Capsule. These representatives of technological advancement were chosen by a special White House committee to join culturally and politically significant objects, everything from a piece of the Berlin Wall to Ray Charles sunglasses to Twinkies. Well, okay, not the Twinkies. They were part of the plan, but due to concern that mice would get into the 2x4 steel capsule, the Twinkies ended up being removed and eaten by some of the committee members. Anyway, the National Millennium Time Capsule was a White House project by then-President Bill Clinton to preserve the, quote, artifacts, ideas, or accomplishments that represent America at this time in history, end quote, and it would be opened in the year 2100. What will people a hundred years later make of these artifacts? It's funny to think about when, even now, barely 20 years later, it all feels so quaint. Laptops were kind of around. Cell phones were kind of like big brick cell phones. They had like a lot of the prepay ones. Internet was kind of hard to come by. Uh, we had AOL, so it's still dial up. Uh, you still have to wait to connect. And then it was like a nightmare if like one of your family members picked up the phone while you were chatting on AOL and then it would disconnect to you. And, you know, we had landline cell phones, so you could call and, you know, the older brother would answer and you'd, you know, ask to speak with Maggie. And if she wasn't there, then you'd have to go track her down or wherever she was. You know, you couldn't be texting. We did have pagers, however. I forgot about pagers. That's Heather Martin. In 1999, Martin was a high school senior, just one month away from graduation and all of the life transitions that would follow. One last summer vacation with the friends she had grown up with, going off to college, and then the start of the rest of her life. But Martin wasn't just any graduating senior. She was a senior at Columbine High School in Denver, Colorado. And on April 20th, 1999, something happened that shaped the rest of her life. Just hearing that name, Columbine, most of us know what comes next, or parts of the story anyway. But for those that aren't familiar, just a little note before we get started with this episode, we will be talking about some tough topics this week. School shootings, gun violence, the experience of that that lives on via the internet. Some listener discretion may be advised. This is Nevertheless, a podcast about learning in the modern age. Each episode, we shine a light on an issue impacting education and speak to the women creating transformative change. Supported by Pearson and hosted by me, Lee Alexander. My name is Heather Martin, and I'm a teacher in Aurora, Colorado, and I'm also a Columbine survivor. So the shooting happened on April 20th, it was a Tuesday, and I was in choir class. And we were trapped in a room for about three hours and we barricaded ourselves in and there were 60 of us. So one cell phone and then because it was a teacher's office that we barricaded ourselves into, there were two landline phones as well. So kind of what that looked like as the three hours unfolded is that my pager was going off like crazy, like people trying to get me to call back, call back, call back. The carnage at Columbine started in the morning, approximately 11.19 a.m. The attack itself lasted for 52 minutes, though the entire ordeal went on for hours before police cleared the building. By the time that it ended, the two perpetrators, students at the school, 
had killed 12 of their fellow students and one teacher and injured 21 others. We were using the landline to try to call 911 and try to call our parents, but the line was busy a lot of times, like 911. There had been other school shootings in the news before, but Columbine touched a nerve in the American and world consciousness in a different way. This was partly because of the media spectacle around it. It was this nightmare scenario playing out on your television set in real time. The way that people were getting information about the shooting was really through the media. The helicopters circling the school that were taking live footage. It was kind of a watershed moment in the American psyche when it came to school safety. It changed how schools approach security, leading to zero-tolerance policies on threats of violence. It spurred a conversation about bullying and goth culture, which some blamed as factors driving the shooters, though this theory has since been debunked. And unfortunately for some, Columbine's perpetrators became heroes. There are groups of people that idolize the Columbine gunmen, and it's, it's like this weird cult, um, and it's just growing. I don't have the exact statistic, but if I were to sort of average it out, I would say nine out of 10 mass shooters have cited the Columbine shooters or have referenced them or have at least done their research and have idolized them in some way. And tragically, there have been a lot of other mass shootings since. Earlier this summer, the Washington Post calculated that since Columbine, over 187,000 students in more than 193 schools around the United States have experienced a school shooting. And expanding the scope of shootings from schools to malls, movie theaters, parks, street corners, and homes, the number of students directly impacted by gun violence goes up even more. This makes understanding how to support young people in building resilience in the aftermath of a shooting incredibly relevant work and timely to anyone interacting with students. Now, this concept of resilience in education is not new, but it's typically used in a pretty different context. The definition of resilience to me is the ability to persevere through failure, to continue to have a sense of efficacy and self-management and control of one's future and future possibilities. That's Dr. Judy Willis, a teacher turned neurologist and adjunct faculty at the University of California's Graduate School of Education. She applies neuroscience to teaching. And Dr. Willis says that while there are more resources for teachers on developing resilience, and certainly a lot of interest from teachers, a lot of the time these resources are hard to access. Professional development is available to, for them to learn it. But the problems go back to the funding for schools and the planning of school curriculum. And when you're in teacher education, there's so much that teachers need to know before they hit the ground. Besides, the type of resilience that Dr. Willis is talking about, this ability to take mistakes in stride and continue to learn, is a little different than resilience to serious trauma, such as shootings. Defining resilience, I think, is, is very difficult. Oftentimes, we define resilience at the individual level. However, we can do a lot more as a society, as a community, as a neighborhood, or as a school to make our institutions places where the institution is a resilient institution that then requires less individual resilience. That's Dr. Misir Kiels. 
She directs the Trauma Responsive Educational Practices Project at the University of Chicago. The project is changing how schools serving lower-income communities of color approach trauma. With these high-profile school shootings taking place around the country, Kiels has seen an increase in interest in her work. And one of the most high-profile school shootings this year took place at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, on February 14th. That's when a troubled former student got into an Uber with an AR-15-style semi-automatic assault rifle, went to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, and opened fire. In the six minutes of his rampage, he shot and killed 17 of his classmates and teachers and critically injured 17 more. Leonor Munoz was a senior at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, and she spoke with Nevertheless about her experiences before and after the shooting. I was always just a normal high school student. I'll be honest, I never really had school spirit. My school spirit was like lovingly hating my school, like a normal student. Whenever they would come on the morning announcements and say like, school motto, I always kind of like say it along kind of like mockingly. But it was never out of actual hate, it was more of like, you know, mocking it lovingly. The school motto was, be positive, be passionate, be proud to be an eagle. Things just changed after February 14th. There's no way I can, you know, make fun of my school normally, like a normal high school student, because, well, everything that's happened it, it would seem disrespectful like it, it's just weird for me to imagine a time when I wasn't scared to go to school scared just to like exist outside of my home but these shootings don't always happen in a school context or at a scale that captures national attention this was Megan Hobson's experience Hobson was 16 years old when she was hit by a stray bullet near her hometown in Miami Gardens, Florida. I was shot in a drive-by shooting a little before midnight. It took like 10 minutes of my life to change. I was shot with in my right hip with a, a bullet, well, two bullets actually, that went through the bumper, the trunk, and the back seat before entering my right hip. My small intestine severed my nerve and shattered both hip bones and also uh, leaving me with a walking disability, which is I can't really control some of the things from my knee down on my left leg. I have four surgeries, and I will probably need more surgeries in the future. The bullets never exited, so I still have fragments in my reproductive organs. Will I be able to have kids? I do not know. This happened when I was 16, so now I'm like of childbearing age, so that's more of a question. But I wasn't thinking about that before. Six minutes at Parkland, 10 minutes in Miami Gardens, 49 minutes at Columbine. That's how long each of the shootings lasted, but these mere minutes changed everything, so that months and years and even decades later, survivors are still dealing with the aftermath. have a lot of depressive thoughts, I think, following shooting, a lot of trust issues. Honestly, right after it happened, I was like, I don't trust anyone anymore, and except for the people at my school. And I didn't even know half of them. So I trust there were like 3,500 people who I trusted, and that, that was it. Like, even my family, it's hard to, to tell them about things when they weren't there. 
and it's, it's not even their fault. I didn't really confront anything seriously regarding the shootings until 10 years. So I went out of town every year for the anniversary. I didn't really talk about it much. I, I know I tried to talk about it a lot in the, um, I'll call it the immediate aftermath, but in survivor world, that's kind of a long time. Like I would put the immediate aftermath probably about a year. Resiliency, that word is only beginning to resonate with, with me within the last probably two years. I wasn't acknowledging that I was being resilient. I was just doing what I had to do every day, I think. You don't have a choice kind of survivor. Like you survive not just that night, but every night from then. So it's really not necessarily something where you can take the time to think about. In fact, not thinking about it was one of the ways that Heather Martin coped with the aftermath of Columbine. The 10-year mark is when I finally had the opportunity to go back into the school because as a senior, I graduated and Columbine was a very large and extensive crime scene. So the school was closed down for the rest of the school year. So we went to a neighboring high school and as seniors, we never had to go back. I, I was really anxious to go back, but it turns out that that was like one of the best things I ever could have done because I will always remember that day and I will always have those, um, the terrible memories from April 20th, but I have so many more awesome memories from high school. And, you know, when I walked into that building, instead of just being focused on the horror of that day, you know, I remembered being in the musical and I remembered laughing with my friends at lunch and all the happy memories that flooded with my high school experience. In 2012, Martin co-founded The Rebels Project, which was meant to serve as a resource for and by school shooting survivors. So when we started The Rebels Project 13 years after the shooting, I felt prepared to talk about it and talk with others. However, it was another mass shooting that prompted the project's start. On July 20th, 2012, a man entered a midnight screening of The Dark Knight Rises, set off a tear grenade, and opened fire, killing 12 and injuring 70. Aurora, Colorado is about 22, 23 miles from Littleton, Colorado. So while having another event comparable to Columbine in that sense was really difficult for survivors to have to relive that. And so again, it's all over the news. Columbine is being brought up all over again. But this time, you know, it had been 13 years for us. So we were able to have the gift of time to sort of reflect on what we've been through and what's worked for us, what hasn't worked for us. So we formed it essentially to be someone to listen that did understand and did have an idea of what it was like to go through a traumatic experience on that level, basically in the eyes of the world. Because it's not just the horror of experiencing a shooting, but doing so with everyone watching and judging, thinking that they know what you've been through. Nowadays, a lot of that watching and judging and opinion is instantaneous thanks to social media. Back in 1999, though, it was the traditional media that played that role. They were in the bushes. They were camped out on the front lawn of the school. They were outside of my house. They were, I mean, they were everywhere. There weren't any boundaries. <laughs> And that was really, really frustrating um, because we couldn't even grieve without the world watching and the world intruding on our grief, which is actually one of the big takeaways that I have now, just as I help support other survivors, is just that idea that it is different when the world's watching you grieve and you have to find a way to grieve on your own without, without that intrusion. 
Everyone handles the grief and recovery process differently. I thought it was interesting that you have peer support groups for um, families who are just miscarried, or you have um, Alcohol Anonymous as support groups. You have just different groups for different, I'd say, like life challenges that people are facing. But when it came to gun violence, there really wasn't that support from survivors that was based to kind of tell you or walk you through the day-to-day of this new normalcy. Unable to find what she most needed, Hobson decided to become that resource for others. I just wanted to be that real voice of reason in the room. There wasn't that for me. I feel like I would have needed that to be inspirational, too. I would have wanted for some of my push in the hospital to come from people who genuinely knew what it was that I was going through. In activism, Hobson found a new meaning and purpose that helped her move forward. I think that the resiliency within it becomes a different force, you know. But personally, yeah, you have your personal battles. Whether you feel like doing it today or if you don't feel like doing it today. I wanted to be the voice for the voiceless. I remember I told my mom, there aren't a lot of gun violence survivors who are speaking out. So I just decided with me being here, my second chance of life, I was going to do what was, I guess, a life mission to me to make sure that I continue to be a voice in the face of gun violence as and what I represent within the demographics of how people view it. In the weeks after the school shooting in Parkland, Florida, many of its survivors became powerful voices in arguing for stronger gun control. Parkland seniors Emma Gonzalez and David Hogg in particular became household names for their outspokenness and eloquence. The winter is over. Change is here. The sun shines on a new day, and the day is ours. Six minutes and about 20 seconds. In a little over six minutes, 17 of our friends were taken from us, 15 were injured, and everyone, absolutely everyone, in the Douglas community was forever altered. We had at least two months of just straight anger, of like being in the anger stage of grief. And after that, I started to get a little tired. You want to get on with your life. I hate that what happened happened. Before this, in time, like, I never really wanted to be an activist. I wanted to change things. I wanted to be part of movements to change the world. But this isn't what I was planning. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to, like, write stories and, like, fiction stories and stuff like that. Like, that's what I wanted to do. And now, I'm sorry, I don't, I, I don't want to keep fighting to keep remembering for the rest of my life. I'm always going to remember, but it's just so taxing, so tiring that, like, and I do feel guilty for not wanting to fight for the rest of my life, but I also want to have a life eventually, and that doesn't mean that I won't stop fighting. Every time there's a protest, you'll see me. Every, every March 24th, March for Our Lives, I'll be there. Every February 14th? Also, I'll probably be crying. <laughs> I'll probably be um, back in Parkland and, and, you know, remembering everything with, with my friends. And every time this happens, every time another school gets shut up, I'll be at a protest. I'll, I'll be there making my voice heard. But that's not what I want to do, like, as my job. I don't want the fight to be the uh, the main thing that I do. And quite honestly, 
I don't want to be known as the girl who's from Stockland, the girl who went through a school shooting. That's not how I want to define myself. Professor Masir Keels, the academic helping to change how inner-city Chicago schools deal with trauma, has also studied the experiences of college students of color in social justice and activist movements, especially in protesting another type of gun violence, which is police shootings. She explains that this activism can be helpful in recovery, but not always. It moves you out of a passive space, and it moves you out of maybe possibly taking a self-blame space. So you're able to look at what are the societal structures and then being engaged and being involved in thinking about how do we change those societal structures. However, it is also possible that depending on how much time, energy, mental space that one engages in activism, that it also can be a stressor. For Munoz, Martin, and Hobson, knowing when to take a step back and put their own personal well-being first has been key. Now I'm kind of on... I hesitate to say hiatus because I am still tweeting out support for the movement. I am still appearing at, like, um, certain events. At the same time... I am a little on hiatus because I do need to prepare for college. I do need to, like, you know, pack up, move out. And I'm taking a slight little break by reading something that I actually like instead of gun laws and the news. I'm reading the Percy Jackson series because I've gotten at a point where I do need to focus on my mental health. And if I don't, then I'm going to be in trouble, especially when I go to college. Things that um, burnout is very, very real. And if I don't learn to deal with my emotions, deal with my trauma now, honestly, I probably never will. And I don't want to, like, years from now, still have this draw undealt with pain. They're two different things because you, when there's activism and, and resiliency within activism is you see it in the news and all that stuff and you, you grow weary because you're like, why am I working towards this and still nothing is happening? Like, here we are again. One of the key lessons for Heather Martin has been that it takes time, that healing is a continuous process and that however long it takes, it's okay. This myth of being able to overcome or have closure in the sense of such a traumatic event is not really a thing. Like, you're never going to overcome it 100%, and you are never going to have that closure. And this, the minute that you kind of internalize that and start to believe that and know that, then I think your recovery gets a lot easier because you aren't in judgment of yourself and you're also not allowing others to judge where you are on the journey. So maybe a part of resilience is really understanding that and knowing that you can keep going and it does get better and there is hope and there will always be hope. March 24th, 2018, the day of the March for Our Lives rallies. Over 1.2 million people participated in over 800 events around the world to rally in favor of stronger gun laws. Leonor Munoz spoke at March for Our Lives, Boston. I remember hearing the knocks of the SWAT team. I can still hear them knocking. 
I remember collapsing the next day because I got up and had to remember those who never did. I remember hearing my dad knock on my door the next day and falling apart because I thought it was happening again. I will always remember every single detail. My trauma isn't going away. And neither are we. And us Parkland kids, we're not special. I wish we were the only ones to have ever known this, but we're not. We're not especially articulate. We're not super charismatic, and we're not the first students to be fighting for this. This movement was always here. People were always here screaming for change! Even before these rallies across the world, the movement has had some significant achievements. The Department of Justice banned bump stocks and other accessories that make guns automatic. Four states have passed stricter gun laws. Big corporations like Delta, United, and MetLife cut ties with the National Rifle Association, and retail stores like Dick's Sporting Goods and Walmart have stopped carrying assault rifles. But while there's been momentum and achievements to be proud of, some activists, especially activists of color that have been fighting and rallying for gun control for years, have expressed frustration with the narrative that's emerging. Every time I turn on the news, I'm hearing about a shooting that took place there. This and regardless of you hearing about the shooting, the school shooting that happened there, you hear about the resiliency of the survivors. You hear about how they're really keeping up this momentum and making sure that things do change this time around. But there have been people fighting from way before that, even have been reaching out to help some of the parking kids, I think, with their campaign and with their just, you know, with their tour and just going out and making sure that their messages are being heard and uniting them with other um, communities like in Chicago and places like that. Not that that frustration prevented her from getting involved. Megan Hobson attended the March for Our Lives rally in Miami, Florida. But she said there were a lot of kids from her neighborhood that wanted to take part but did not have the resources to do so. We tried to get buses to buses into here because there are people that couldn't make it from the BC, the area that was on the news the following week. On a Sunday afternoon in early April, four high school students were gunned down outside of an apartment building in Liberty Square, Miami. All of them attended nearby Northwestern Senior High School, which had just held a peace march for the shooting death of a two-year-old a week earlier. Kids were from that square were still asking, hey, so are people coming now over here to talk to us about that? And they just, you know, they thought that they were a part of it, but it was so sad to know that you had to explain to some of these kids, like, they're not going to continue to come over here because you're not that neighborhood. Hobson thinks it's a matter of resources. If we gave some of the inner city kids probably the same resources to go out there and spread that message, who knows what they could, you know, achieve because they don't have that opportunity most time. That said, she also believes that focusing just on the difference in response misses the big picture, and that's why she also took part in March for Our Lives. It just goes to show the bottom line that it's not the community that's the problem, it's the guns that are the problem. But regardless, I think it's safe to say that no one ever wants to be known for this, honestly. So even though we talk about media and we talk about the lack of attention on one community compared to another, no community wants this kind of acknowledgement, recognition. But whether we're talking about March for Our Lives or earlier movements, social media has played an important part in the experience of gun violence survivors. If I don't use social media, then quite honestly, me, as a teenager, I do not have a place. I didn't talk to another survivor of a mass shooting in general 
until probably Facebook really got up and moving because how would you connect with them? So when I do have community events, I use social media. I put Instagram for pictures and uh, flyers and videos for promotional purposes. One of the most positive roles of social media has been in connecting survivors to each other and building community on their own terms. I remember some of the survivors from the Jonesboro, Arkansas shooting coming out to Littleton to try to help us afterward. But we were like, dude, we don't want to talk to anybody. Like, you need to go away. Like, leave us alone. Leave us alone. So social media kind of gives that opportunity to reach out when you're ready. Like, you don't have to be on someone's front door to connect with them. Meanwhile, Twitter became a key platform for the March for Our Lives movement to take shape. In addition to just organization, social media and live streaming on social media has also played an important part of citizen media and accountability efforts, especially in cases that, for whatever reason, the traditional media has not covered. Here's Megan Hobson. In areas like that where the cameras don't show up, you have kids with their phones who live stream things on Facebook Live. And for me, my story was never on the news. There was never any breaking news that there was a girl shot last night in Miami Gardens in April of 2012 on the date that I was shot on. So for me, I think that it's important because whether I died or not, somebody, like maybe they wouldn't know my name unless I died. Or they just haven't covered it well. Heather Martin recalls that in the aftermath of Columbine, the media was in charge of the narrative. The spins could be whatever the media wanted them to be in that case. Like you're not going like Facebook Live or doing any kind of live interviews where, you know, somebody else is not in charge of your editing or, you know, cutting up your interview. So you kind of have, I think now you have a little bit more control um, than we did back then. But of course, with all the benefits of Facebook and Twitter and so forth, these platforms have serious costs as well. Every time I go on social media, I can tell my mental health does plummet. There's self-care. And social media, I will not say it's self-care. <laughs> social media is not self-care at all. For one, there are the trolls. People would go into my comments, go to my posts from five weeks ago, from five months ago, and start commenting that I'm wrong, that uh, I should have killed myself, that I should have, that I should have died there. I'm like... These trolls would just go through my comments and tell me that it was my fault for somehow bullying uh, the shooter, even though, first of all, he wasn't bullied. Second of all, I didn't bully anyone. I mean, I know I should ignore the trolls, but in, in terms of survivor's guilt, when they're trying to, like, invoke that, when they're trying to invoke something that's already there, it does kind of sting a little. I have learned never to read the comments because I, it's awful. The things that people say are terrible and hurtful and lies. They're, it's so easy to spread misinformation. I remember, I think two years after the shooting, I was on Twitter and I said something about the gun laws or something, and someone told me I'd be lynched for infringing on the Second Amendment, right, or something like that. And I was so beside myself. I didn't know what to do. But of course, I, like, replied back to the person, but then I blocked them. And then there are the photos, the videos, and other voyeuristic details that circulate and go viral. There were videos circulating from inside different shootings. People are recording it happening, and how could you share that? How could that get out and people want to watch that? But 
the other side of me is like, I understand. It's like one of those train wrecks or a car wreck or whatever. Like you drive real slowly as you walk by and you want to see it and you want to experience it because you've never been through it. But from a survivor's perspective, that's pretty horrifying. As part of her work on trauma in marginalized communities, Dr. Keels has been following Black and Latinx college students as they move through university and navigate activism online and off. She provides another perspective on how social media use affects student activists and organizers. Yes, the ever-present nature of stress, violence, crime, social unrest, discrimination, racism in their social media feeds can be thought of as a re-traumatizing factor in their life. It triggers memories, it triggers experiences, and you never get to step away from it. So now what does all of this mean for those of us that work with or who are concerned about building student resilience? For Heather Martin, who now teaches high school seniors, the response to this question has at least two parts. As an educator, as a survivor, I have three exits out of my classroom. I also have a plan and I have a backup plan and I've got the backup plan for the backup plan. I go to like active shooter trainings so that I can kind of learn the rationale behind these protocols so that I can take that information and combine it with what I know having gone through it and having experienced it and sort of choose for myself what makes sense. But it's not just about contingency planning. That's almost the easy part, not that any of this is easy. The harder part? connecting on a human level. I do share my story with my students every year. You know, I'm not going into gory details or anything, but I need them to know that if we do a drill, a lockdown drill, or they know to take it seriously. And and I will explain why they should take it seriously. And it also gives me the opportunity to share a little bit about myself and make myself vulnerable to them. Because I think that students today in any school really have have been traumatized. You know, I, I think it's something like seven out of 10 students have been had early childhood trauma or something, but it really offers that opportunity for them to be vulnerable with me. And then they will share their experiences with me and, you know, I can offer the appropriate support and, you know, get them help or, you know, connect them with someone who can help them. Or maybe they just want someone to understand and to listen to, you know, something awful that happened to them and they've already gotten help, but they can make that personal connection with with a teacher and with a person. So ultimately, building resilience and supporting resilient students comes down to empathy and authenticity. Unfortunately, that's another arena in which tech and the internet can be a mixed bag. While technology and social media really offer this really awesome platform to connect with people from all around the world. It can also be a hindrance in that you might be lacking in that human connection. And that's one of the many ways that educators and communities can step in by providing that real, authentic connection. Here's Leonor Munoz. For most of my best teachers, I think that the quality that they share, the quality that makes them special is that they they treat us like people before they treat us like students. The education we received in Douglas was instrumental to making our movement. I don't know if you noticed, but or if anyone else has noticed, but most of the students from Douglas who 
uh, went and became like big voices in activism, most of them are seniors. That's because in senior year, you can take government. Most, a lot of people take AP government. We've used what we've learned in his class to arm ourselves with the knowledge to make this movement. When there are those teachers telling us, hey, you have a voice, you can use it, here is how you can use it, things really do become very possible. Nevertheless is a Story Things production. Series producer is Renee Richardson. Executive producers are Nathan Martin and Anjali Ramachandran. This episode was produced and written by Eileen Guo. Music and sound design by Jason Oberholzer and Michael Simonelli, supported by Pearson and presented by me, Lee Alexander. For show notes and a series of downloadable STEM role model posters, go to neverthelesspodcast.com. This week's unsung hero is Henrietta Swan-Levitt, an American astronomer who discovered the relationship between luminosity and the Cepheid variable stars.